Let's open God's Word this afternoon to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9, and we'll read verses 2 through 29. 2 through 29 of Mark, chapter 9. Once you've turned there in God's Word, would you also turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 9, which is found on page 876 in the back of the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, As we consider this afternoon what it means to confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Lord's Day 9. But we begin with God's word, Mark chapter 9 at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John And led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out 
and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And now to the Catechism, Lord's Day 9. Question and answer 26. Lord's Day 9, question and answer 26. It asks, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by His eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father for the sake of Christ His Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt He will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. This is what we confess and are called to believe. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you ever wanted to know just how determined the devil is to undermine and destroy the works of God, look at Mark chapter 9. It begins with an otherworldly display of glory as the light of God the Son is unveiled. The voice of God the Father announces His love for God the Son And then comes the command that Peter and the disciples and the entire world should listen to him. What a revelation this is of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that happens is Jesus returns to the world, you could say, at the base of the mountain. Is he's confronted with a demon trying to destroy the life of a young boy. It's immediately tragic. The devil does not let Jesus have his moment. The transfiguration doesn't linger in the air for a while. That Jesus gets to have a gentle reacquaintance with the sin and corruption of the world into which he has come. It's right there, this contrast. He comes from glory and hearing the voice of his father to hearing the voice of a distraught father begging for help that no one else has been able to give. And there's this boy convulsing so terribly because of an evil spirit that when Jesus casts out the demon, the only thing left is that he looks like a corpse. So it's in the presence of those two extremes, this transfiguration and this demon possession, the glory of the Son of God in the flesh and the corruption of a world where a father can't even help his son. 
It's in the meeting of those two worlds, you can say, that Jesus makes a statement that is just incredible. All things are possible for one who believes. Now, too often that statement is ripped out of its context so that it can be turned into whatever you want it to be about. If you want to win the baseball game, well, just believe because all things are possible if you believe. If it's a career you want, a lifestyle you want, just believe it and then it will pop into existence. It's meaningless. To believe in belief is meaningless. What good is a belief in something that doesn't exist? What good is a belief in an idol that is only going to destroy you? When Jesus says that all things are possible for one who believes, he's not talking about a generic faith. And so long as you're sincere about that generic faith, you can believe whatever you want. No, what Jesus wants us to hear and to see when he says that is that he's in the middle of this transfigured glory and this violent demon possession. Because in the middle of those two extremes stands this one, this Jesus, who in all of his glory has come into that kind of a world to provide hope and comfort to these kind of people. And to call us to faith. And to draw us back to his heavenly father. You see, that's the connection between the transfiguration and demon possession. It's it's Jesus. Jesus has come. He doesn't come to tell us that he's too far out and above us. That he has nothing to do with this world. And he stays up on that mountain. But neither does he come into the mess of this demon possessed world. And say, well, I'm here but there's nothing I can do about it. There's no answers that I can give you, no hope that I can offer except maybe a little bit of consolation. But Jesus shows us that in Him, whether it's the transfiguration on the mountain or the demon possession at the base of it, there is always a reason to stand up and look at Christ. And when we look at Christ, there is always a reason to say, I believe. I believe. And as we see this afternoon, specifically with Lord's Day 9, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, both when I look at the transfiguration and when I look at demon possession. I believe. And that's why Jesus says to us, all things are possible. And so we'll look at this in three parts. First, we'll hear the Father's voice. Second, we'll see a Father's helplessness. And third, we'll hear our Father's answer. Jesus said all things are possible. Now the transfiguration is the second time in the Gospel of Mark that we hear the voice of God the Father. The first time we hear His voice is in Mark chapter 1. The baptism of Jesus by John the Baptism in the Jordan River. As Jesus descends into the river and as he is baptized, you read the story, the Spirit descends upon him as a dove and then a voice is heard from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. You might think if the Father is speaking and the Spirit is descending, this is an occasion of tremendous greatness and majesty, so grand that it, it, 
its arrival to, say, the coronation of King Charles III. If you watch any of, of that online to see what that looks like, all the pomp and circumstance and everything's special and everything's somber and everything's beautiful. It's all orchestrated. It's amazing. And so you'd expect that when the Father speaks and the Spirit descends and Jesus is baptized, likewise, it should be like a coronation service. Something that special. That's not what happens. The voice that speaks from the Father says, You are my beloved Son, does not send Jesus to a palace. Boys and girls, you know what happens next after the baptism? Where does Jesus go? It says in Mark chapter 1 that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That's that's interesting, isn't it? The parallels between Mark chapter 1 and the baptism of Christ and Mark chapter 9 and the transfiguration of Christ. Both of them have the voice of the Father declaring, this is my beloved Son. Both of them have Jesus preparing to take the first step of the next stage of his earthly ministry. In the baptism, it was to begin it. In the transfiguration, it was the journey towards Jerusalem. And both of them are immediately followed by the work of the devil. Why? It's because the Father sends the Son. The Father loves the Son. The Father desires the salvation of His people. The Father governs all things through the Son. The Father gives the kingdom to the Son. And all of those things that the Father does, both in the baptism and the transfiguration, Satan says, I hate that. He hates it. Even our confession that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them who still upholds and rules them by His eternal counsel and providence is my God and Father for the sake of Christ His Son. Satan hates that. That's why he went into the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. To ruin that. To ruin the creation. That's why he came to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, to ruin His calling. That's why He comes at the base of the mountain, to ruin the transfiguration, at least to try to. Everything that the Father does and the Father is determined to achieve, Satan is determined to destroy. Satan wants a rival kingdom. He wants a rival people. He wants a different creed for us to say. It's not even that he comes to us and says, well, you confess Lord's Day 9. Let me give you a blatantly satanic creed and let's confess that instead. He's, He's wiser than that. All he cares about is so long as we can't confess Lord's Day 9. Sure, maybe God made everything, but you resent him for the way that he made it. Sure, you say that God's in control, but do you really like the way that God has chosen to control your life and the things that he has allowed to come into your life? Sure, he says that God is your father, but you can run away. You can despise his authority, his love that really doesn't prove to be beneficial to you. He can say, well, I've given you my son and you should trust in him, but 
How's that really going to help you? Is that really going to improve your life? In other words, what Satan is trying to do at every step of the Father's will is to undermine everything that the Father does. To bring unbelief and despair. To make this confession of faith nothing more than a superficial, empty confession of faith. Satan did this in the Old Testament all the time. He worked to tempt God's people in the, in, with impatience, with discontentment, and so they'd complain. There's not enough water. There's not enough food. We had different kinds of food in Egypt. Life was better in Egypt, or now that we're in the promised land, it's hard here. The nations have some great stuff. And so they come to Moses, or they come to the prophets, and they complain, and they complain. You know, if only, if only, if only God did it this way. You know what, if God's not going to treat us any better, then maybe when Moses is gone, and he's gone for a long time, let's make a golden calf. Here's your God, Israel. This one will take care of you better. And even Moses struggled with the way that the Father oversaw the life of his people. Again, Israel's complaining, and the Lord says, go speak to that rock, and I will bring enough water out of that rock. And Moses gets so fed up with the people, so frustrated that he strikes the rock instead of speaking it. You see this later on in the prophets. Elijah, it's like he's beating his head against a brick wall. Everything he does, oh, he's the one who's got to leave and go live in hiding by a brook. He's the one who's got to be fed by crows. He's the one who's got to go to Gentiles. He's the one who, even when he stands there on Mount Carmel and proves that God is sovereign over all things, the Father is still the Father, and the devil and his Baal is nothing. Who's the one running? It's Elijah who has to run away from King Ahab. And then when he gets to the mountain and God asks, what's wrong, Elijah? Elijah pours out his heart and he says, what are you doing here, Lord? I thought you're supposed to be the father of your people. And God says, I have preserved 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. And you got to wonder if Elijah thought 7,000. I mean, that's something, but it's not much. And yet, you notice something about Mark chapter 9. Who were the two men who were standing beside Jesus in the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, and yet both men inadequate. Both men who proved themselves sinners. Both men who grew impatient with the Father's ways. But think about what it says that he would put Elijah and Moses beside Christ there. What that says about the Father's determination to deal with the people who deserve to be wiped out for their insolence, for their insubordination against the Lord. A people who turn their hearts away from God. A people who turn to Baal. And yet the Father loves them. See, that's that's the church that the Father builds. That's the church that surrounds Christ, that He puts there, the law and the prophets. Men who have suffered so much, who would question God so much, and there they stand. As a witness to the Father's faithfulness that though we in our weakness fail to believe, yet what the Father has done is worthy of our faith. This God Almighty, this Creator of heaven and earth, this Father who upholds and governs all things, this Father who still maintains all things, this Father is the Savior. This Father is the God who loves His people. And brothers and sisters, nothing's changed from that. Even though the transfiguration happened 2,000 years ago, nothing has changed of this confession. 
The God who created everything out of nothing is still the one who upholds and governs all things for us today. God doesn't need his creation in order to be God, so the only reason he maintains it is for our sake so that we return it to him with glory. When he set the pattern of the creation and made everything perfect in six days, the pattern was for us to see that, the order, the beauty, the righteousness, the communion, and to return that back to the Father and say, Lord, we see how much you love your people. But ever since the fall, we've struggled to do that. We've struggled to say, yes, Father, your will is good for us. And instead, we have this perception, Satan tempts us to think that the Father's cold, or the Father's distant, or the Father's uncaring, or the Father's helpless to do something about it. How often the church, Old Testament and New, has struggled to make this confession meaningfully. But if ever there is a time where we wonder, is the God still the Father that the Bible says He is? Look at Mark chapter 9. First we see this Jesus, this Son of God, and we hear this voice speaking as the glory of the Son fills that place, and the Father announces, I'm not distant from you. I haven't forgotten about you. I'm not hopeless about these things. Look at my Son! whom I have sent to stand there next to Elijah, next to Moses, in the presence of three confused disciples, nine other disciples not that far away, and at the base of the mountain, a covenant people so lost in their sins and rebellious hearts that when Jesus preaches the gospel, they reject it. Here's the question we should be asking. Why did the transfiguration happen at all? Why? What is Jesus even doing there? Why is he involved in a fallen world? What did the Father say? This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. This is the redemption of the people that I love. This is the salvation of sinners who even they have rejected me. This is proof that the Father's love has not wavered. This is proof that I'm not too far away. This is the sacrifice I am willing to make so that you can hold on to this confession of trust. I will so uphold heaven and earth and rule everything in them by my eternal counsel and providence so that my Son, veiled in flesh, will hang on the cross for your sins. That's what the Father's voice is saying up on that mountain. That's what His voice calls us to believe. The Father's voice says, look at Jesus and see that I uphold you, I love you, I care for you. See my powerful hand that governs all creation, how that hand has been opened towards you with grace, that I would send my Son to you. Do you know the Father who's done this, the brothers and sisters? Do you know the Father who has expressed His love in Jesus Christ? Do you see how His heart on top of that mountain is looking towards sinners to say, here is why I've sent my Son so that first we see Him on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
so that soon we see him hanging on the cross for our sins. That's the Father. That's the Father we confess. That's the Father we must put our trust in. And not just on the top of the mountain when things are glorious and light-filled and beautiful, but also at the base of the mountain when Satan challenges us. Can you make that same confession? Even in the face of a father's helplessness, our second point. Jesus comes down. When he comes down, the first thing he notices is the scribes and his disciples are arguing. The scribes are saying something like, you know, how dare you think that you have the power to cast out a demon? And the disciples come back, well, we've done it before. Jesus sent us out and we could have power over the devils before. And the scribes say, well, why can't you do it this time? What's missing? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your Jesus? And the disciples are saying, don't blame us. We don't understand it either. In this back and forth of confusion and blame and, and turmoil, you, you almost sense kind of what it would sound like, this acrimony in their voices. It's going nowhere. It's just bickering. And there stands the father with his helpless son. Here are people, you know, the scribes, the leaders, we're the ones who can tell you what God says and what God wants and where God is going. And the disciples saying, well, we're following the Messiah. We're the ones who know, and neither of them can help. And there's Jesus. So, of course, they run to him. Jesus, you can help, right? And Jesus asks the scribes, what are you arguing about with them? And Jesus, of course, already knows. But he's pointing it out. That here they are bickering about who's in charge and who has more power and who has the authority. And this father is there helpless and they can't do anything. And the father comes forward and describes what the evil spirit has done to his son. It seizes him, it throws him down, it foams, he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, he becomes rigid and nobody's helped. The scribes can't help me, even though they thought they could. The disciples can't help me, even though they thought they could. This is my son. You wonder, you know, if, if that father was reading his Heidelberg Catechism on the way to go see Jesus that morning. Of course, the Catechism was written 1,500 years later, but you know what I mean. If the father was reading his Catechism and he came to Lord's Day 9 that day, would he have been able to say as he's carrying his struggling boy, I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me upon me in this veil of tears. It's not that easy when it's your son. It's hard enough if your child has ever suffered through a terrible disease. It's just to sit there at the bedside. That's hard enough to say that. How much more when an evil spirit has taken possession of your son's physical and mental abilities and this boy gets thrown into the fire as soon as you turn your face away from him. So you've got to go save him again. And then once you pull him out of the fire, then the boy goes running off into the water and the evil spirit tries to drown him. So you've got to go rescue him again. It's like this demon has taken over. It's like he has possession that's why we call it demon possession. He owns this boy. The demon is in charge. Not the father, not God. This unclean spirit rules the world. He rules this boy. How would you, how would you 
comprehend that? How would you think about this as a father? I have no idea. Uh, Thankfully, demon possession is not something that we fathers have to deal with very much. Although we should not be surprised if we see more and more violence and outbursts becoming common in our society, the more that it turns away from the Lord and the devil's work becomes more prominent. But even if it's not demon possession, some of us have had to deal with situations so severe and so heartbreaking. The feeling of being a helpless father is overwhelming. You're there, if you could, you would give your life for your child. You can't, but you would. So what do you say? What do you say? It's at that moment that Satan comes to you as a father and he says, Turn from faith to unbelief. Look at how helpless you are. Look at that despair. God's not helping. God's not fixing. Whatever help God has given, it's certainly not enough because you're still in this trial. Like you even think for this father, years down the road after this, his boy growing up, you can still see the scars on his skin from having been thrown into the fire, the burn marks. You wonder sometimes if the father would ask, Lord, if you would only sent Jesus before the demon had possessed my son. He wouldn't have to grow up and look like that. Now, that's the way the devil works. If only the Lord was there. If only the Lord had done something different. Because he wants our hearts to just be full of despair. Full of those questions. You can understand how a father in this situation would grow bitter. Don't tell me something superficial that God has a plan for my life. Don't tell me that God loves us. Because if he loves us, what's going on with my son? Don't tell me that I have to pray for God to be merciful. You know how many times I've prayed and then it gets worse? Unbelief is so ready to take over. Certainly we would expect this father to struggle that way. And we can relate to that. Wrestling with God, wrestling with this confession of trust in the Lord. That's why we need to see what happens next. Jesus speaks to this father. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He asks him, how long has this been happening to him? He gets right into the middle of it. He involves himself. Tell me. Jesus doesn't say, I don't have time for this. Jesus doesn't say, well, I'll snap my fingers and then walk away. Jesus puts himself in the middle. He wants the Father to tell him how bad it's been, how much of a struggle it's been. But then Jesus says remarkably in verse 23, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Doesn't that seem kind of superficial? Kind of a a quick answer? Why did Jesus say that? Are we supposed to, anytime we have a struggle in our lives, just close our eyes and say, I believe, I believe, I believe, and then it's possible. It's going to happen. Just believe. Don't take medication. Believe. Even though God has given the gift of medication. That's how some people misinterpret this text. Don't be stewards of the gifts that God has given to you in the church to deal with trauma and depression and other miseries that we face in our lives. Just believe. Just paint a smile on your face. Just say, I'm a happy Christian. 
then if things don't turn out well, you didn't believe enough. You're not a good enough Christian. Sadly, that's what passes for the gospel today. So many churches, you see it on the online TV still, you see these, these peddlers telling you about Jesus Christ, that if you just believed and gave your money to the church, then everything would be great in your life. All things are possible for one who believes. But what is Jesus saying? What does Jesus want us to believe? Is he telling this man to believe whatever he wants and it'll be possible? You know, if you believed that you had a million dollars, you have a million dollars. If you believe you on your own can cast this demon out from your son, you don't need Jesus for that. Just believe that you can do it. Of course, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. The belief is not in ourselves. The belief is not in our ability to believe. The strength of our faith, it's not in the genuineness or the amount of faith that we have. That's not what we put our faith in. What can I do? Even if I believe, could I cast a demon out from my own child? No amount of believing in ourselves could ever make that happen. So we say, okay, well, he must be meaning believe in Jesus. Well, yes, of course, but believe what? Believe what? Remember back on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So here we have the Heavenly Father declaring, this is the Messiah. And now we hear the voice of this helpless Father who hears from this Messiah, believe. Believe. Believe what? You know, Believe in Jesus and your children will never suffer. Believe in Jesus and your children will never die. Well, some of us have a lot to grieve over. Because we have lost so much. What do you believe? What do you know about God? It's that the demons of this world and the diseases and the sorrows of this fallen creation and even the weaknesses and the frailties of our own sinful hearts, even these, no matter how grave no matter how uncontrollable, none of these are beyond the Father who calls us to put our trust in His Son. None of those things are beyond His care. None of those things are beyond His gospel. How do I know that? How can you be sure that none of those things are beyond Him? Where's Jesus? Is He still up on the mountain? Enjoying, basking in His glory? No, He's there with the Father and the Son in such tremendous need. These things are not outside of Jesus. They are not beyond Jesus. They are not extra or outside of His gospel. There Jesus comes and He's in the middle. There stands the one who is not only able to set this boy free, but He is the one who in His compassion has so much love for His people and care for the miseries that our sin has brought to ourselves and our families into this creation that Jesus says, I come to be in the middle of it to such a degree that I will go to the very cross itself. I will involve myself in your miseries that I will carry it to the cross. 
so that when He comes again, every single misery of which Christ is in the middle will be answered when He returns. What does that say to us? That says to us that in every misery and every hopeless prayer and every despairing thought and every temptation that we have to face to say, I can't trust God anymore. What's the answer to those things? What do we need in those moments? It's to see Christ not just up on the mountain. We need to see Him on the cross. We need to see Him in the midst of our miseries. We need to see the One whom the Father sent. That the Father loves His people so much that rather than leaving us to suffer those miseries alone, He sent His Son as the pledge who will provide whatever we need for body and soul. And even so much that this sacrifice of the Son of God in the flesh is so great that every adversity that the Father sends us in this world, in this veil of tears, He will turn to our good. Every single one. Can I tell you what good will come of the adversity that you're facing right now? No, I have no idea. The pains that you've had in the past and the scars you still carry, can I tell you what good the Father is working out of them? Maybe you already know, but maybe you don't. But it's not that I have the answers. It's not that you have the answers. The point is that Christ is in the midst of these things. Not a single one of them has Christ overlooked. Not a single one of those tears that we have shed has God forgotten to count in His bottle. The proof of the Father's compassion in all things, in all miseries, is there in the person of Jesus Christ. There the Son of God who in all of His glory stood at the top of the mountain has come to the base to stand with this Father and His Son There to speak to the helplessness of the heart. There to care for those who have nothing. What we see in Christ is both glory and compassion. We see both majesty and misery in Jesus Christ. That's who the Father is for us. That's who the Father has sent for us. That's why we make the confession that whatever adversity He sends us, He will turn to our good. The cross is proof of that. Which means, as we see in the third place, we can then wait for the Father's answer. Jesus says to this dad, all things are possible for one who believes. He challenges this father. Do you believe in the Lord? Can you trust Him even now? And it says, immediately, verse 24. It's like Satan knows exactly what Jesus was going to say. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This happens so quickly. Jesus challenges the father and he comes back. And what happens to the son? The son is convulsing on the ground. He's having this this attack from the devil and the father is crying out. I believe, help my unbelief with tears, you can be sure, with shaking and trembling, what's happening to my son? He does not have a smile painted on his face. He doesn't say, Jesus, you know that I'm a strong enough Christian. He doesn't ignore the reality of the miseries that he's in. He cries out to Jesus, I believe, 
Help my unbelief. It's so important to see that. The father doesn't stand back and say, well, you know, most of the time I'm a pretty good Christian. And so that's why I dare to ask God to help me out of this adversity. I'm a really strong believer. It's just sometimes I have a few weaknesses. No. He doesn't look at himself at all except to confess his weakness. Lord, I have nothing. But you have everything. He cries out to Christ. He cries out to Jesus. The hope that he has rests in Christ. And so he lays the troubles of his heart before Jesus. We need to do the same. Don't hide what is in your heart, even if it's unbelief. Don't pretend with the Father when you pray to him. He made you. He he still upholds you. He governs you. His eternal counsel and providence is over you. He knows what's in your heart. He knows the mixture that we still have of belief and unbelief. Has the Father ever held himself back from you because he says, well, you don't quite have the right ratio of faith to unbelief here. I'd rather you get 70% faith and 30% unbelief before I allow Jesus to do anything to help you in your life. What this testimony is saying is that even if it's 1% faith and 99% struggling to believe in the Lord, what does the Father do? He puts Jesus in front of you. He puts Jesus in front of you. He says, here is your Savior. Look at Him. Listen to Him. And so when this man makes the confession about his faith and unbelief, Jesus goes to the boy and rebukes this unclean spirit, and then something happens that on the surface appears to be tragic. Jesus commands the spirit. The demon cries out and convulses the boy terribly. The demon leaves and the boy is like a corpse, it says. A dead body. So much so that the people around there said, he's dead, the boy's dead. Think of the look they would have had as they look at the boy who's lying on the ground and they look up at Jesus. What did you just do? You made it worse. At least the boy was alive when he was demon-possessed. You've killed him, Jesus. Not even the demon can do that. Many of us have cried out to the Father. We've begged for his mercy. Spare us, Lord, from our sorrows. Spare us from this tragedy. Spare us from this heartache. And we have to confess that it's not uncommon for the Lord's answer to those prayers is to make things worse. You get a cancer diagnosis, you cry out to the Lord, and then you get the news that it's actually stage four. It's worse. You hear that there's downsizing at work, and so you might, might be losing a few hours you say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to feel, feed my family. And the boss calls you in his office and say, sorry, you're laid off. It just gets worse. Talk about an opportunity for the devil where he sees, I'm going to needle my way into that person's heart. See, the father doesn't care about you. You prayed to him and he made it worse. All that trust you talk about for the Father who loves you in Jesus Christ, look what He's allowing to happen in your life. 
Brothers and sisters, look at Jesus. Yes, the boy is like a corpse, but Jesus, Jesus doesn't walk away and say, well, I guess you didn't believe enough. Sorry. I guess you didn't pray hard enough. Call me when you do. No, he goes to the boy in an even greater misery, and yet he takes this, this boy by the hand, lifts him up, and he rises. You think the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. You think of Lazarus. Brothers and sisters, look at Jesus. This demon that tried to convulse the boy, throw him into the fire, throw him into the water, Jesus is command over these things. But how much more does Jesus show his compassion when he takes one and makes him rise from the dead? If a demon is bad, what about death? What about death? What if death is the answer to the prayers that we offer to the Father? What if death is the answer that God gives to say, this is how I will bring your misery to the end, to its end? What does the Bible say? It says that not even death can separate us from the love of God, which is for us in Christ Jesus. Not even death can keep our Savior in the grave. Not even death, not even death can hold and restrain those who put their trust in the Lord. See, we have to think differently than the world does. The world says, I see sorrow in this world that God created. I see hardship. I see misery. I see death. And so until those things are gone, I refuse to believe in the Lord. God cannot deliver me from those things, so I will not put my trust in the Lord. And that's why when we Christians say, well, God is all loving and God is all powerful, they just laugh at us. But what are we really saying about this Father? Look at Jesus whom the Father has sent to us. Look at the power of Him who upholds all things and rules all things, including demons, including death. Look at Jesus who comes into the middle of that misery, who though He deserves to be on the mountain, has come down veiled in flesh to take the misery of His people and with tremendous love and compassion, goodness and righteousness, comes to this father and son in such terrible despair. And he comes not just to save the boy from a demon, not just to save the boy from death, but to save sinners at the cross. To save sinners at the cross. That's the father's determination to love his people. That's the God we are confessing in Lord's Day 9. That's the God who is able to do these things. That's the God who is the faithful Father who desires to do these things, like Lord's Day 9 says. That's the gospel. The transfiguration paired with demon possession, you could say. The glory of God that hangs on the cross. So that those who are in misery and despair can look upon the Lord Jesus Christ who is not aloof and distant, but that the Father has sent Him to us. The Father says to us, listen to Him. Listen to the One who brings good news of forgiveness for sinners. Listen to the One who in Himself brings life that overcomes death. Listen to Him with the good news of hope that overcomes every misery 
even death. This is the confession that we get to make as Christians. That God our Father has sent this Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Sometimes we say that confession as if we were on that mountain full of glory and delight. And sometimes we make that confession as tears fall from our eyes like this helpless father. But it will always be the same confession that our Savior is with us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown us Christ. As we learn from Lord's Day 9 to confess what it means to say we believe in God the Father, it's that Father who sent us Christ. It's that Father who ordains all things. It's that Father who even turns what is wicked and adverse adverse to us into our own good. It's because of Christ that we know that you are able to do this. It's because of Christ that we know that you desire to do this. It's such a beautiful thing to say that you are our God and Father for the sake of Christ your Son. And so, Father, whether we look upon you this afternoon in the glory of the transfiguration and we see our Savior there, or if we look upon our Savior with the tears and distresses of a demon-possessed boy held in the arms of his Father, we make the same confession. We look to Jesus. He is the one who is our refuge and our strength. He is the one who is the answer to our despair. He is the rock. He is the one who redeems sinners. We thank you, Lord, that in all of the questions and all of the temptations to not believe, you put before us this afternoon Jesus. And so, Lord, keep our eyes fixed upon him. That even in our unbelief, our struggles to believe, we look upon the Savior who is there with us at the cross. He is our hope and our redeemer. He is the peace for the troubled soul. And he is the pledge when all things will be made new. For Jesus' sake we pray.